Welcome everyone to another episode of the podcast. Quick housekeeping for you as per usual. Make sure you rate and review five stars on Apple's podcast app. Follow me on Instagram at Felix.Levine. My YouTube channel, subscribe, Felix Levine. Search it on YouTube. You can subscribe, watch everything in its full video formats as well as smaller clips and highlights. Um, and I love when you guys reach out to me. Tell me what you do like about the episodes, maybe what you don't like. That's also incredibly helpful. Um, guests you want to, to see on the show. Um, so please, please reach out to me, FelixLevineWTG at gmail.com. You can find that on my website, Felix-Levine.com, or just DM me on Instagram. Uh, I usually check those, so please, please do that. Um, it's really awesome to, to hear from you guys. And my guest today, she is one of the top journalists out of Kosovo and has an unbelievable life story, which includes covering uh, radical Islamic activity for the last, you know, 10 years or so. Please welcome Arbana Zara. And we're live. Arbana, thank you so much for, well, this is our second time meeting, um, but for coming on my show, because I'm, I'm very excited to, to have you on, so thanks for making the trip out. I'm honored, and thanks for having me. So I told you a couple minutes ago, if there's, you've done a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts, all that stuff, uh, if there's perhaps something the world does not know about you from what's already out there, and I know, and I know that there's a lot. Uh, yeah, so I'm known, so whoever writes something related to Islamic State, uh, religion, Turkey, they tag me usually. So though I I am kind of, I am a single mom of two boys. Uh, so being with them around, I'm kind of different the way people know me. So when they come into my house, I'm like, oh, you are like this. We thought that you are very serious, just <laughs> writing. No, I do so much many things with my kids. So yeah, so there is different Darbana. What, what kind of, how would you describe yourself as a mom? Like sometimes very strict. Oh yeah. But sometimes like my youngest son, sometimes like, Mom, sometimes you are much younger than your age, the way you <laughs> act. So <laughs> I play with them. We go a lot to watch movies and because of what we've been through. Right. And now since we are here, I'm really into their life and I miss being with them because I've been working a lot on field and since I moved here. And since the pandemic, I'm working mostly from home. Uh, I have kind of some more times also to spend with my kids. How are you? How are you strict with them? Very strict. Oh, <laughs> like yeah? especially like what? the youngest one who just turned thirteen. Okay. He likes to play after the school, and I'm kind of maybe because of what happened to me. Right. I'm kind of sometimes too much, and I don't know if I mentioned previously when he was playing and he outside the school and he was telling to their friends when he was talking to me, like, stop, you don't know that, you know that my mom is Albanian. I was like, why you told them you are very strict <laughs> and they don't know. Yeah, maybe because of the circumstances and everything and being a single parent, right. it's not easy. No, Especially in the United States, in New York. Have you, have you kind of loosened up over the years of living here or is more just still strict mom? No, in the beginning, it was much I, harder because they were very like, 13 and 8, so yeah. now our 
grow on. But still, yeah, with school and everything. Sometimes, like yesterday, I had the conversation with my parents and they told me, like, you've been very young through tough things. Just don't expect them to be like you. Like, uh, sometimes I ask too much from them. Maybe just trying to, because of what I've been through and... Maybe I don't understand them, their world. I'm trying, but... Do you know, um, or do you, like, how weird is it for you to kind of raise your kids here as opposed to, you know, your childhood, which was obviously very different than how they grew up? First of all, raising them in Kosovo and raising Uh, them here, it's a huge difference. I had a lot of help. I was editor-in-chief, so I had someone to take care of them, to take care of things over my house, and now it's different. But yeah, when they complain sometimes, oh my God, I'm in depression. <laughs> like I was 16 during the war. So just don't talk to me yeah. about depression. So I just try to explain to them how hard it's been. And it still is for so many parts in the world out there. Because I do a lot of research and writings on what is going on in Middle East. Now war with Ukraine. So it's their age now. They are trying to escape from being killed. So I just try to bring them an image of their reality because TikTok, it's not their reality. <laughs> so they have to know this because yeah. you never know during your life the struggles you might have. Right. So I just want them to get prepared and not to complain that much because knowing their their friends, even in Kosovo, back there in other countries, they are suffering right now a lot. So I, like, I'm very excited to have you on my show for a lot of reasons because... I have so many questions, especially when it comes to, you know, extremists and all that. But I think for my listeners out there um, that aren't acquainted with you yet, um, I want to be able to give them a little bit of like a background more so on who you are. So I'll let you, if you don't mind, just kind of give a little bit of uh, background, quick background. Obviously, you know, you've had a long life um, on how you got into, you know, the journalistic field um, and a little bit of your upbringing, obviously, through the war. Um, and then, yeah, just so then after I can kind of, people can better understand who you are and where you come from. So when people ask me where you're from, I say, I am from Pristina, same city that Dua Lipa is from. (laughs) So I'm Albanian from Kosovo. Uh, I start working as a journalist since I was 18. Uh, I was during the war in Kosovo most of the time. And then, uh. I found interesting when I, we tried to escape, we escaped after two months of the war in Albania, neighbor country. And at the time I could speak a little bit of English and I've been giving interviews to the major media outlets, like everyone was there. And I had a chance to tell the world what was going on in Kosovo. And then I have realized the power of being journalist. After the war, I was still in high school in Kosovo and everything was new for us. And being living under the regime and having big dreams. And then one of the sudden you're free and you have this chance to make a change. So I went to Pristina, the capital city. I was I was very shy as a child. And I remember the day that my dad was driving me in Pristina and we've heard that there is this new private journalism school and he stopped the car we were asking some people do you know where this school is and I opened the window and I was so shy and my dad was like 
you have to change. You cannot be a journalist and this shy. But I changed a lot. It was very hard in the beginning. I was lucky to start internship in the largest newspaper in my country. I was working seven months as an intern, not being paid. So (laughs) this is what I mentioned to my kids. It's not seven weeks, it's seven months. And then I had a lot of uh, good opportunities to travel abroad, work with international journalists from AP, BBC. In the meantime, I met my ex-husband who is journalist, sports journalist. So we kind of understood with each other. It was much easy also to raise our kids, even though I was very young when I had my first How son. You? 21. Okay. But in the meantime, having the support of my family helped me because it was not easy. Immediately, I jumped into a difficult themes and subjects. I start investigating organized crime, corrupted people, corruption back home. It's not just an individual. When you are corrupted, you are linked with the government, you are linked with the power. So you do not have a support from security institutions, like from police. You you have no one. Then uh, there is a lot of international audience, like embassies and representatives, and they've been following my work. I start receiving a lot of awards. I don't know. Sometimes when I think, where did I get all that courage? I was in my early 20s yeah. when I start chasing money and going after very dangerous people. Mm-hmm. But as I said, one thing which I miss is being with my kids because I've been very, very much active uh, in journalism, traveling, writing, investigating, meeting people. It was like my mission, not just the work, nine to five. No. So it was much more than that. So did you ever have, like, where did, I guess we were talking about this courage, like, you're going up, as you said, it's like the police don't help you there. Or, you know, because they're also intangent and corrupt, just as corrupt as the the, the higher powers. Um, where do you feel like your original courage kind of came from to be able to to investigate what, you know, in these, especially your country, but in some of these neighboring countries, like, you're not going to be protected if somebody comes after you. When you have the support of people, you kind of feel the protection, the moral protection. So then I really had a lot of support from the U.S. Embassy. I met often with the U.S. ambassadors because they knew what I've been going through. Most of the threats were published because I've been speaking up on what was happening. So I kind of felt that protection that I at least I have from someone people that supported me and I was very very young and sometimes I underestimated threats until I've been brutally attacked later on so we are going to talk talk about about that that. so do you remember like how old you were when you got maybe like your first like a first threat where you're like man this is kind of dangerous maybe I was 18, 19, wow. when I started writing about these uh, illegal buildings, uh, the the owner of the construction company, and I started writing about how they are building without getting permission. And uh, as I said, I was lucky because everything was published in the largest newspaper. And at that time, there were no Facebook or social media. Right. So uh, I knew that my stories will have some sort of impact. And I went to meet this guy who owned the company and asked him about the illegal 
buildings and he's been trying to give me to bribe like to give me some money and I didn't accept that so he pushed me over the wall of this improvised office in the field and I went in the office and I wrote all the details of what happened to me how he pushed me over the wall and he was trying to put the money on my bag and all that the fear not the fear i i wanted things to change i was hoping for change because as i said when you experience the war you love your country so you right. do this beyond just being a sim- just a random journalist it's much more than that and then when you see the reaction of people and then not just that they supported me they've been providing me with a lot of informations and then i had the first uh, award that i received for the best story written on corruption, I find out how the son of the former Kosovo president, he was lying that he got the, they sold his car as a new car, but he was crashed and he was trying to fix a neighbor country. Mm -hmm. But as I said, having a lot of stories, I was provided with documents and many, many interesting articles. So what is it that fascinated you about corruption? As I said, for us, everything was new, new state building, new institutions, because we were under the Milosevic regime under Serbia. And you kind of see your own people destroying your own state. So they've been misusing the taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. So I've been mostly focused on how they've been misusing the public money. So these businesses, private people were getting money from the government. This was the corruption in Kosovo. So they've been uh, building, for example, highways. And they were getting money from the government to build because the Kosovo was was trying to build up. And I grew up watching a lot of movies Mm -hmm. with my parents. And I kind of find out a lot of things that I already have seen out Uh there. And when you experience, you Uh go after the budget and then you talk to people, sometimes anonymous sources, or I had some people from Secret Service that I didn't even knew their name. They were giving me envelopes on the street or because they didn't want to text me the exact uh, address. I was saying like downtown, I'm meeting you after this building. Mm. And they were just giving me that envelope with uh, names and numbers and it was, and I really miss that time because it's different when you are back uh, home uh. and do all that stuff. Was there a, a certain thrill that you would get, like when you would get like an envelope with like a name and number and you're meeting in like a rogue area or whatever it is? There's got to be something kind of thrilling about it that, is. no? It is, because you first feel of like all... like a detective. Yeah. First of all, you kind of feel that power that you can change things, right. knowing that the state is doing nothing and you are so young and you have so much power to change your country for better. And then sometimes, yes, there have been like positive things after the publishing the article, like someone reacted and other media were doing follow-up of your story. But you know, that feeling that every time you got into this, you just dig and dig more and more. So you are never enough with what you're doing. Have you always been like, were you always this kind of ambitious when you were young? I was so shy. So when we had people at our house, guests, I was shy to get into the room. Like completely, I changed 100%. And everyone, especially, I think journalism, 
But like what moment, maybe? When I st- when I went to this private uh, school, college, uh, the first day, every Monday we had guests and asked them questions from different backgrounds. That, that day was this famous singer. It was first day for me at school and I was shy to ask her a question. Yeah. She was a singer. So then when I started internship at this newspaper, there were so good journalists, like the best journalists. And I didn't even have the chance during the morning meetings to speak or suggest topics. Like you were just an intern there. Mm-hmm. But there was a very good editor-in-chief. I remember first day after the meeting, everyone was going to have coffee. And I was getting prepared. And he was like, where are you going? <laughs> no, <laughs> you are sitting here and you are translating. First of all, because uh, we had to translate yeah, and yeah, see yeah. if we can translate from English. But then you kind of have the role models that you want to follow and right. be like them. Right. So I I was also very fascinated with Christiane Mampour. She's from CNN, journalist, and she's doing a lot of things outside uh, United States. So I had the chance to meet also with her husband, which was very involved in Kosovo. So when you step out the, your country, you kind of realize that you have a lot of opportunities and it's you are lucky to have the chance and to change things for better did you also like how much of the war when when you experienced it um like because i imagine when you when you're able to to leave what you're saying when you're able to leave your home country and and just see the world you start to realize that it's much bigger than you know those walls of your own country but how much did the war also kind of factor in your desire to like learning more about the outside world and like what was really going on first of all during the war uh we were praying me and my sisters i am the older one so we were praying to god to got killed by the bullet and not massacred because we were hearing that we're praying to be killed by the bullet, bullet. and not massacred yes Jesus. because where i come from yeah. uh they've been burning alive people so we've heard so many things during the war the war starting on march early like 24th March. How old were you when it started? 16. Okay. So then on May, so March, April, May 2nd, we left and the war was over on early June. So we were during the war for two months in Kosovo, escaping from house to house. And there've been a lot of the genocide happened. Genocide happened in my country. So, being 16, 17 years old, my younger sister and my younger sister was 10. And I remember we were in the basement. We were praying to be killed by bullets. Like, can you imagine yeah, that no, trauma? No, I and then escaping and our, our way to Albania, which is neighbor country, we've been seeing killed people on the streets and people escaping and burns. And we were stopped by the police and questioned the fear at that age. So I then after the war, as I said, you just compare what been through, we were going through, and now we have our own state. Right. We've been saved and we have to save that. And because I was one of the first uh, journalists to start writing some different things, especially on the rise of extremism, 
a lot of journalists based in Europe, for example, someone from United States based in, in Germany, they came to interview me because they found interesting that there is a journalist in Kosovo that is speaking about the phenomenon that the whole world was facing. Right. So I I had the this New York Times journalist, they came to do investigation on ISIS and I work with her and I've been telling her what was going on. So you kind of, as I said, you have this chance to build the network, but also this helps you to work as a journalist. Right. And I and obviously all the ISIS stuff and Islamic State stuff we'll talk about in a second because I, I think that's fascinating. But just with regards to the war, so I'm curious, like, what for people that have not been part of a war, um, who are lucky enough to not have gone through it, like we describe and obviously there's currently in Ukraine, so it's you know, I guess timely in a sense, like what is it like to be like truly in a war, even if it's only for a couple of months? You can understand what people are going through, but without feeling it, it's completely different. Right. Uh, We know it's sad what is happening in Middle East, in Yemen. Millions of people are starving and kids. But the war in Ukraine, because it's Russia, and we were in war with Serbia. Serbia is close to Russia. Kind of you feel that. It's happening close to us. It's it's happening in Europe, in in the democracy, basically. So you kind of 22 years after what I've been through, one of the sudden... I try. I had dreams, even though at that time I didn't have kids. When the war in Ukraine started, I felt it so much. I started having dreams that I am escaping from war, trying to save my kids. So you see, yeah, the yeah, trauma yeah. is is in here. Right, right. So you might think that yes, it's over, right. but it's in here. So I don't know the fear of, as I said, not just being safe, but being killed easily as mm. a kid. It's too, it's, it's a lot in your entire life that things will, that will follow me. What is the, but, and so what, what was like the, the day to day like in surviving a war when you're there? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you a sequence of what happened. One night we, they start burning our neighborhood and we escaped. So how our neighborhood was built. So walls next to the houses, they had like a small doors. So it was not from the main entrance door, but within the mall, the the walls, we were escaping and we were maybe approximately 200 people within one house. And within one room, I remember I had these pens and my mom put in my pocket a lot of pills and things because we didn't know what might happen. And it was all dark. In meantime, NATO was bombing Serbia. And where they put in bombs, like you had that feeling that the whole house was shaking and everyone was at some moments, they've been trying to escape. That what, what is going on? You don't know. It's dark. You are all packed. Mm-hmm. Like we were laying down. I remember I was next to the cab- kitchen cabinets. And during the night, uh, when there is something burn, you have this feeling that is very near you. So everyone was saying, oh, that our house is burning. And I started having panic attacks. Mm-hmm. For the first time, I remember I couldn't breathe. I was, because it's so hard to think or to see that your house is burning. Like right. it burns all your memories and everything. And I remember they were giving me some pills and water. Uh, 
But in the morning, when I saw the roof of our house that it was not burnt, I cannot tell you the feeling of yeah. that uh, happiness that it's yeah. not burnt. So there are a lot of moments. Or when we had a cousin that came and she said that her father-in-law was burned alive. And that night was the moment my dad decided to leave. And we left to Albania because we didn't know. There are thousands of people disappeared from my city. Uh, they lost a lot and they got burned. I remember the smell of the burned people, the smell of the burned flesh. So and when you and when you're escaping, you're yes, seeing when these I'm escaping, things, I was seeing this. Like you see, it's just dead people. Yes, all around. dead people burning police paramilitary groups on the street they stopped our car and asking my dad where are we going where are we going the he Serbians said, asked. yes yeah. and we said yeah we are going to Albania and he said yeah you were supposed to leave early because over one million people left Kosovo wow. and he, he's I remember he was telling us like yeah and you are never coming back wow so all these things affects also your personality it makes you stronger and that's why having a kid on my early 20s and doing this job i couldn't easily decide just to be a journalist covering daily political mm -hmm. events cover go to the conference write about that yeah. but i would it was not enough for me and when you so when you guys escaped mm -hmm. like how long is that journey from it's like three four hours drive at the time because uh, we were stopped at the border and we had to hand in all our documents, like passports, IDs, wow. everything. You kind so you of just give it and you just everything get... kind of you do not exist as a human being. Wow. So you had to put everything. I remember that thing with hundreds of passports, IDs, and they don't try to they don't try to kill you. No, because we've been escaped. Like they were like long people, a lot of people escaping every day. They were escaping so. As soon as we got at the border with Albania, we were sitting in the car. I think my dad was talking to some people. And I remember one journalist came near us and he's been asking me, asking us where we came from. And I start speaking English. And then he said, would you come next to my colleagues? And I remember I was surrounded by these big mics. And it, yeah. it was, and then, yeah, we asked. We went to this, we were trying to find a place where to sleep and where, yeah, there were thousands of people. On so the where street. do you like sleep? Where do you go? Yeah. So we find a house. They've been welcoming all the refugees from Kosovo. And I remember the first house that we own because we changed. The room was colored with very dark colors, maybe just because we escaped war. And it was not white. It was like red and bluish something like that and i remember the anxiety we had and we've been crying like we don't want to stay here because yeah. it kind of it was the fear following us and yeah then my dad was trying to find a little bit of better place we wanted to go to the refugee camp but my sister she suffered from asthma and we couldn't because the conditions were horrible right. and then my dad found a place uh, and we were staying then for like 
a month and a half. And so, like, do you guys have any money at that point or anything? We had some money. And I remember there were a lot of uh, international organizations. They asked us if you want to go abroad. But my dad was saying, no, the war will be over soon. And we didn't know that. And we are going back. We are going back. He didn't want to leave Kosovo. And I remember there was this two men and a woman that came in house. They were interviewing us because... There were a lot of opportunities at the time to go, to come in the United States, different EU countries. They organized with planes uh, to do the displacement. But my dad refused, so he wanted to go back. And then what happened when the war was finished? So we went back home. I was still in high school. In that same house that... Yeah, the same house. And did it look the same? It's pretty much the same because some other people from other houses, they went to to sleep so people were kind of moving from house to house so yeah kind of it's a little bit of the blurry that time immediately right. after the war and then what I remember the most was when I went to Pristina the capital city because it was the first time I was leaving the house and starting everything on my own right and not knowing that I mean we grew up listening news uh, but it's not that I I was thinking about to become a journalist. Right. As I said, that moment in the border, it gave me some things that, yeah. What, what was it like to, I'm sure you didn't expect that your house was going to still be there. Like, what's it like when you... No, we knew because oh, knew. we were in contact with oh, okay. people because there was some phone lines that we could right, right, right. talk to our neighbors and family members. What so. was it like when you first like came home to your own room after the war? Must be a weird feeling. So what we've got from our home when we escaped, all the photos. Because oh, yeah. at the time, we yeah. didn't have photos yeah, on yeah, our yeah, phone. Because yeah. we didn't know if yeah. the the house might be burned out. Right. So we just want to have the photos. That was the main thing we got. Yeah, it the, the feeling to go and from door to door to meet with our friends right, and right. hug them. And right. yeah, it's just... And having... NATO there. So the NATO, the there were Italians because the different NATO members were were based in different, like the Germans were in different uh, okay. cities, the right. Italians were in our city. So it was just, we, the Serbs are not here. Yeah. So there is something that you don't know unless you just experience that right. relief of not being under the regime. So, okay, so now I want to kind of bring you to to some of your work with regards to, to the Islamic State because I've always personally been super intrigued by it and I think like, um, I guess I've never, I guess you're the first person that I've spoken to that's ever spoken to a extremist um, or many. Um, really quickly, kind of side question, did you ever read a book called Black Flags? Do you know this book? No. It's about Zarqawi? No. Um. I remember when I was young, or young, when I was like 14, 15, I read this book and it kind of like piqued my interest and it kind of opened my mind. And I recommend anybody who's listening to read it um, because he was one of the main people of ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he's the founder. Zarqawi was, I don't know if, what, what he was. He's not the founder because I've seen documentaries, but he was yeah, a big figure. He was the big figure. He was yeah. a big figure. Um, and anyway, so I think that that kind of piqued my own interest. But I guess for you, what was the first moment that you, 
I guess, realize that there's some kind of extremism going on. And, like, what made you maybe, like, think, like, okay, there's some work to do here. Yeah. So for your audience and listeners, Kosovo, Albanians, even though those that are declared Muslims, they are very pro-Western. So they drink, they celebrate Christmas and everything. So if you, there was just recently, I don't know if you've seen, I've reposted this short story about Pristina, like the half, more than half of the population is under 25. So it's very modern. So while I was writing about corruption, We've started seeing, as I said, even though majority Muslims, there were no women with burqa or men with a beer, long beer and short pants. So we, we have started like noticing that the number of these people is increasing. And this is around what time period? Like 2010. Right. 10 years after the war. Right. And then some one of the sudden they come up to show up these imams, radical imams with all this speech uh, on all over the internet, uh, their ideology, which was not right. And I was thrilled to kind of, I don't know, I was, I knew that something is happening and they start having people having some concerns. And I said, you know what, I'm going to write this, but I'm going to investigate for how long, I don't know. So there was a fellowship from, there is this uh, media, very credible media outlet based in London, uh, Balkan Investigative Network Reporting. I applied and I won the fellowship. So they covered my expenses to travel. So I wanted to travel all around to find out even in Europe where the money is coming from, what is going on, how they are getting to brainwash the youth on but my really country. quick, so what are what are some of the things that you were hearing of what they were of what these imams were saying that was like that was like sprouting some curiosity in your mind like this is not right like what were some of like they the actual- start talking about everything so they had the they've been talking about the women rights uh, about the geopolitical things how what Americans are doing in Middle East so they try they kind of start increasing this. Western hate. Hmm. Can you imagine a country that was saved by Western countries? Right. So that with the decision of the United States, Germany, Britain, France, the NATO bombed Serbia to save us, like to save a country with majority Muslims, right? Right, right? So now we have these radicals that immediately after the war, they went in Middle East and they become imams. Right. So they came with that mindset, trying to spread the word. Mm. within our society. So I've been listening to what they've been preaching because they put everything on. They start having their own PR companies. So they were the first to use so much better the social media than even media itself. And so uh, I approached to some liberal imams because there's some incidents start happening. So this imam that started receiving threats because he was raising his voice against these radicals. And then I went and meet with him. That what, what is going on? Can you explain to me? And he said, yes. Uh, a lot of things happened since after the war. We were not paying attention. Millions of dollars came from the Middle East. They tried, they brainwashed the, the mostly the youth. So they were based in the most poor areas uh, of the Kosovo. Yeah. Like, can you imagine what I've been talking to you about the war? Yeah. 
how would example my parents if their house were burned right. or suffered or have the commodity to think of if I'm going to follow uh, an imam or listen to his uh, lecture. So the thing is that this is what they use. The youth, mostly 10, 12, 13, 14 years old, they start offering free English and computer courses and asking in return uh. to pray and talk about the religion. Uh, so then they grew up. In 2014, 15, they were already on their her, their early 20s. And we kind of have seen that their number is increasing. And I decided to investigate. So to go after those who brainwash the youth and also to follow the money, as I said in the beginning, not just economy or corruption, tenders, the public money, but in every subject, you have to follow the money and find out what is going on. So just so I understand, so they would kind of create like part of that brainwashing mm -hmm. that they would do or the means that they would go about doing it is creating like what you're saying like lessons whether it's like computer or english yes and then while those kids are there mm -hmm. they're kind of preaching some of that yes. ideology and telling them that they have to pray a certain way and believe certain things that's how it works yes they they use these narratives how to convince these kids to follow them. And they would, so they would give them English also, lessons? Yeah, they've been giving English lessons, computer courses. They've been providing them with a lot of things. Like I find out there was a, a village, very poor village. They were giving uh, money to orphans, some money like in the monthly basis. And these orphans were going in the mosque that they built after the war. So, and they kind of convinced these kids that they are right. And the whole world out there is wrong. So You're right about what? about what they've been telling them. Oh, okay. So uh, I'm going to mention that case that I mentioned before, right. this man. So Albanians during the, during the regime uh, escaped from Kosovo. And after the war, they came back. And there is this man that came from Germany and he decided to invest in a small factory building uh, the wooden stairs and windows and doors. So he had two young boys, like 18 and 20, 20 years old. While he's been working on his factory, there was a new mosque because a lot of new mosques were built after the war from Saudi's money and, and Turkish mo so money. So most of the new mosques were yes. like the radical mosques. Yes, okay. exactly. So both of his kids start going to this mosque. How, when they're how old? 18 and When they're 20. 18 and 20, okay. In the meantime, the war in Syria started. And they've been telling their dad that they are going to leave to fight for Islamic State. So they kind of, they didn't hide what they were trying to do. So this man, he was trying to find the ways to stop his kids not going there. So he went to police and he said, please do something, stop them at the border. Cause it's at 20 years old, old yeah, how are you gonna stop yeah, yeah, it? Yeah. So, but they, they managed to go to Syria. This man paid money to find illegal ways to get to Syria through Turkey. There was an Afghan man that helped him because he wanted to bring them back home, but he couldn't do anything. Uh, the older son got married with this very modern girl, and he was telling me that she used to, to take the cab and go in the city and have coffee with her friends, and she was all covered with burqa, burqa. when she had... 
So you see, and now the state knew the exact case, the imam that basically recruited them. Yeah. Because through him, they got all the connection. How the hell they went to Syria? They had connection. But so when they go, when they send them to Syria, it was for... It was for... To fight for to, Islam. Right. Against the... Whoever is there. So they were saying that... So the thing is that at this age, you need to belong to something. Right. It's kind of... They yeah, have to do something. And this is how... And as I said, nothing happens over the night. They've been going to the mosque for months until they decided to leave. And the thing is, when you got brainwashed, nothing can help you. Even your parents, you kind of, it's very, you lose your own kids. The thing is that the state is to be blamed, not these kids, because these are the victims of these radical groups. Because there is money coming from outside. There are the based organizations. So why the state allowed them to do this? So I had the investigative piece in 2012 was the first time published after eight months of investigative that I did in Kosovo, Albania, some parts of Balkans. And I also went to London because I find out that the money is coming from Pakistan organization based in London. Because for your listeners... ISIS recruited also Christians. Right. 500 men and women from Belgium uh, went to Syria to fight for Islamic State. The thing is that it was fascinating to find out how they build their own network. For example, the man went in Syria. His wife was trying to go with the kids, but she doesn't have money. So he contacts someone else in the same village or the city and say, like, can you provide her with some money and buy her a ticket? So kind of this network, they all help each other Uh. for this mission. Or then I find out this guy that has these, how do you call the place when you wash the cars, the car wash? Yeah, yeah, car wash. Officially, he had the car wash business, but he's been paying for the flights. For all those men and women that wanted to join Islamic State. So I had his picture on the newspaper that I used to work. So this guy is paying because I find out from the circuit service, from the police, from a lot of my sources. This is a car wash in? Pristina. Okay. And so wait, so... Are, so most of them, when they're going to Syria, it's to fight in the war. Are there any that are... Because I remember, you know, from like 2010 to like what you're saying, like 2015, mm-hmm. there'd, there'd also be like these sporadic, random like terrorist attacks all around the world that yeah. ISIS would kind of claim responsibility for. Like, would they, was it when when they were brainwashing these kids, was it also, it wasn't, was it just to fight in the war? Was it also to like, you know, commit some of these yes, acts of terror? because with the help of the FBI and CIA, Kosovo police managed to stop some terrorist attack in Kosovo. So they get uh, instructions directly from Syria. There was the 17 years old. They were telling him, no need for you to come to Syria. If you want to do this in name of Allah, you can do this in your own uh, country. Yeah. So this, is the, this was the risk yeah. of not necessarily getting into the plane and go to Syria. They could do even terrorist attacks. So the random... Things they, they've been attacking, as I said, imams, right. some journalists, and those that speak up against them. But they're 
managed to stop the major terror. I remember in Albania, there was this match between Israel and Albania. And these guys, these terrorist guys, they were trying to blow up the whole stadium. But police, the local police, as I said, with Mossad and FBI, they managed to prevent and stop because they've been listening to their phones and everything. So I remember I got this information from my source that there was this man in Germany that he was talking to someone in Kosovo and he said that he's going to kill me. Mm. So he traveled to Kosovo. An extremist? Yeah, there there is this man. I don't know, obviously, if he said that. So I've heard that he's been followed by the police for two or three weeks, weeks since he while he was sitting in staying in his home in Kosovo because he used to live in Germany. So he came during the summer. They have been following him to see if he's going to do an attack. So the thing is that, yes, in my case, I was attacked and all that. There were some times that police was trying to do something, probably with the suggestion of Americans. But... uh they are still out there just recently that not necessarily albanians in kosovo because kosovo is a small country yeah. it's the whole network right there are from other countries because when you believe in this ideology mm-hmm. you kind of it doesn't matter if you're american friends or italian you all believe you're all brothers and you all have this mission so they also lied, this young men and women, because they've been thinking that when they go to Syria, they're going to have everything, food and money and salary. And then when I interviewed, I interviewed one woman that she was, she didn't know that her husband is killing people. So she wanted to be with her husband. How old and was I, she? She was 23. Okay. And she told me that they lied to her, that, she will have everything better life in Syria with her kids and when she went there she find out that her husband is a killer basically her husband got killed and ISIS forced her to marry to someone else so what happened with these women their husband got killed and they remarry and they were having kids and they are still thousands of women with kids not only from Kosovo from France from Belgium from United States, there are in the camps in Syria. Even the the ISIS, as it used to be, it's not. But the camps with women and kids that countries are not willing to accept them back, they are there. So they, so they'll go. So basically, they'll go with their their spouse, so like yeah. husband and wife, and or with kids perhaps. And if their husband gets killed, then they'll kind of force them to remarry yeah. and have more kids so that yeah. they can continue. Yes. So they marry for like many times within the camp. Then what I find out when I had the, in 2016, I had the story on just the women that joined Islamic State. How many, so how many, what would you say is like the percentage breakdown? At that time, at that time, there were 43 women that joined Islamic State. And how many, and how many men? Uh, 300. Okay. So these women, their average age was early 20s, like 21 to 23. And there is this woman from one city called Mitrovica. She was a fighter. So she was running camps, women camps in Syria. I was provided with the photos of her 
from the field fighting with munition. She and, was, and they're full burqa? Yeah, she was 23. Jesus. No, like you can see her face. But did they? But did she like, so you interviewed her? No, I interviewed her cousin. And what did her cousin say? He provided me with a, with a, they were, they were disappointed on what happened. Yeah, for sure. And how come, how young she, yeah, just went there. And then I had contacts with, you know, I remember I mentioned that woman that got remarried. Right. So they had like a room with a, maybe one hour a day. They had the internet to contact their family through Viber or WhatsApp. Okay. So I had the chance to talk to her when I went to oh, her wow. parents' home. And she'd been telling me that she's not feeling safe to talk to me because that woman uh. was around just looking what they are talking or, yeah, being under the constant supervision. Wow. Of this. So I'm telling you, it's like in the movies. So, There's so, just yeah, so what do you, what do you that, from what you, from your work, like what do you kind of imagine like a life is like on one of those camps? Yeah, because from their words, like what is going on, they were trying to escape and they couldn't because they took all their documents. They didn't have any chance to escape. So there were many from them there, them that they said, yeah, we did wrong. We want to go back, but they couldn't come right. back. But so, so, but what was like, what, what did they ever tell you or yeah. like what life was like? Like, what does They've it look like? They've been having specific tents or uh, even though there were some buildings, according to them, that within apartments that they can go to this center to get the food while their husbands were fighting. But sometimes they were sent, say, staying at the, at the tent. Like, for example, 20 women with their kids at the tent and they've been complaining that they don't have medical things for right. their kids when they are sick. So they find out the completely different reality comparing to right. what they've been told. Right. I remember, I don't know if we can find it in internet, maybe it's not anymore. They did this kind of the campaign, like when you go there, there are houses with pools they are going to have been provided with gold so this way they kind of lied yeah. this and Kosovo at the time and still is isolated and you have young men and women that didn't have the chance to go outside Kosovo and right. it's not that hard to to convince them and so as I said it was uh, the whole network and how they kind of helped each other to go and they've been not taking the flight directly from Pristina because right. they knew that they can get caught easily they've been going like to Macedonia which is the neighbor country and from right. Macedonia I remember I interviewed there was two in 2015 both of them were 15 years old like born in 2000 trying to escape to Syria one of these girls, they were friends. One of her, one of them were in the good economic condition, but the other one was poor. This one coming from the very poor family, she was more radicalized. In the border, this other girl that had better economic condition, she, when the police asked where you're going, and they, she kind of had fear to lie to the police, and she 
told the police at that moment that I'm going to Syria and then police stopped them and sent them back home. Uh. I interviewed her mother. So she told me that her daughter was scared and this is what happened. So, and then you, can you imagine a 15 year old? She was scared when, you, when she realized from her friend that she is going to get married when she got, when she arrived to Syria. Uh. At, yeah. On her way to Syria, she find out that she's going to get married. So, and she was scared and she told the police in the border that, yeah, we are. So these like, so like for these 15 year olds, they're basically being brainwashed and told that they're going to have this awesome life. They go to Syria, but but little do they know they're going to get there and it's going to be terrible. And then she finds out she's going to get married the second she gets there. And she was lucky that she kind of knew and realized what is going on to tell the police that she's going to Syria. And then many others, uh, as soon as they arrive to Syria, they find out the horrible life that they're going to have there. Did you ever speak to any like active ISIS members that had already like committed very atrocious acts of terror? So there are some men that came back. So they didn't admit that they killed people. Right. So they said that, yeah, it was wrong and we realized and we come back. So they've been trying kind of to raise awareness of that this is wrong, but we don't know what they've done there. So And they don't get tried like legally? Like they can't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got trial. There is a trial going on from many of them because mm-hmm. some of them came back. But the thing is that we don't know if they fear consequences of if they are telling the truth or not. I do not believe that staying for two or three months in Syria, they didn't commit right, of course. anything. So, yeah, we got the chance to interview, but it was most interesting to talk to them. They were already there. Those that were trying to come back and not having the chance to come back. Right. The fear of living there and what they've been going through. So having the chance to speak with their parents and telling us the way they've been brainwashed within the years and how they basically lost their kids. Right. So they were telling me we didn't recognize our own children the, the women, like their daughters, were not shaking hands anymore with other males, even though they're cousins. Like one of the sudden, it's just, it's, I had the parent who told me like, I will rather like, like wish for my kid to be dead than knowing that he's in Syria and killing other people. Right, like, right. Yeah, can you imagine a parent yeah. saying that? Such a disappointment. But yeah. in meantime, as I said, I see them as a victims. Yes, they are terrorists, but they are victims of something that state didn't prevent from happening. Before they went to Syria, me and some of other colleagues, we've been trying to raise our voice, see what is going on. These radical imams are using mosques, are using social media to brainwash Mm -hmm. this organization because we had the list of these uh, NGOs that came from Middle East and bringing money. So one of my colleagues, he had a story how Islamic community was provided money from an organization that was linked with Al-Qaeda. So how come a state is allowing this? So, and then what happened? We were just few of us talking openly, investigating, and we were having attacks. We've been declared Islamophobes yeah. because then they wanted us not to be trusted. 
we were not against religion. As I said, we were talking against the radicalization right. of our society. And we wanted to save the secularism of our country. So what we've been asking is religion to be separated from the state. I interviewed this guy when he told me, you know what? Soon we are going to have Sharia law. Mm, you know what Sharia yeah, law yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. and I said, what, like, you want to change the constitution? And he said, yes, this is what we yeah, aim. Yeah. So I interviewed him. He was running an organization. He was an Albanian. He's an Albanian. And he told me, I was recording him, that yes, our aim is to change the Kosovo constitution and to have installed the Sharia law. Crazy. So you have this guy still out there letting him spread his word and spread the influence among young men and women. Right. So, yeah, so this is uh, what we've been trying. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk to you about my longtime sponsor in U.S. Wellness Meats. At uswellnessmeats.com, you can choose from over 350 foods raised the way nature intended. That includes 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, lamb, bison, elk, and dairy. They also have pasture-raised heritage pork, wild-caught seafood, and pasture-raised poultry. These are some of the host of foods that you can find at uswellnessmeats.com where the owners are the actual farmers themselves. And now they've introduced a subscription food delivery service and curated sample farm bundles. Choose the bundle of food you want to receive every month and they'll deliver it right to your door automatically. It's never been easier to serve your family real, honest-to-goodness food without the junk. U.S. Wellness Meats is the choice of championship sports teams, professional athletes, chefs, world-class trainers, and families just like yours all over America. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to save 15% off of every order at uswellnessmeats.com. Now let's get back into it. When you spoke to some of the imams, did they ever like admit to, or not me, they probably didn't admit to anything, but do they ever kind of um, acknowledge that, you know, some of these kids that are being sent to Syria, um, like, do they have any acknowledgement of what they could be doing or what they're actually doing? In the beginning, they made calls, public calls to go to Syria. In 2014 and 15, there have been arrestments. Over 40 imams and some other groups wow. were arrested by the police and then released most of them. Right. Then they were scared to kind of publicly ask for people to join right. Islamic State. And of course, they were telling them that, no, it's not, you cannot blame us. So they've been mentioning that also other men and women from Western countries are joining, that this is not right. So just after they've been scared, they can be arrested. But someone convinced them to go out there. And this happens right like before even Islamic State existed. Right. So when we start writing about the race of extremism, there was no Islamic State. So at what point did you feel like your, I mean, you've, you've been getting threats like kind of your whole journalistic career, so it's not like unusual for you. But at what point did you start realizing like, okay, this is like I'm in, I could be in real danger. When they find out where I live and when they come and they draw the Red Cross next to my apartment in the wall. They it, was draw, your, it was your son who had seen it Yeah, first, my right? son was seven at the time and he came back from school and he was the did first Did he understand what it meant? no. No, I don't think so, because I remember, like, police came in our, in our house. They kind of, they knew that their mom is dealing with some stuff. 
because even right before, even before I was writing about Islamic state, I've been followed by people when I've been writing about corruption. So I was with my kids in the car and I was followed by a car. And when I called the police and police managed to stop them, they find out with their plate, plate number, yeah. number. So my kids kind of grew up in that environment mm -hmm. that their mom is a journalist and she deals with this kind of stuff. But when they find out where I live, but even police at the day told me like, don't worry. They, if they want to do something to you, they wouldn't warn you by this sign. And I kind of, when a police officer yeah, tells yeah. you something like that, you still, you kind of, you know that they are trying to silence you because it was not just that. Sending photos of my kids on my social media, mentioning that they are going to kill them. And they sent to me the photo uh, of a killed person on the ground, his head removed and the blood all over the ground and all over the ground. And they sent me this photo and they told me, we know how much you're, you love your own people, your own children, and we are going to find you. Wow. This message was sent, written perfectly in Albanian. Mm. So there was this Albanian terrorist that was use, they were using social media to scare me in order to stop me and silence me. I didn't stop. I was underestimating, saying like, yeah, I am doing a good job because there is a reaction. So they are right. scared, which means you are doing something. And then after the, the, they draw the Red Cross, a few weeks later, the attack happened against me. Right. And, and I don't know how, I mean, so with regards to, to that specific, like the attack, um, I don't know how much you want to relive it or not. I don't know. Uh, if you want to talk about it, but what, I guess, were there signs that you could actually get physically attacked or did you like, even that night, did you have any idea that something could, could happen of that, like, you know, severe nature? So when you receive constantly threats that we are going to find you, we know where you live and kind of nothing happens basically. You are not killed. You kind of you are just trying to scare right. me. And you've had so many of these threats. So, so it's not many. Like, it's not like you're like yeah you're like all and right, another one. And it was for years now. Right. For years now. And I was not just receiving threats over social media. They've been doing stories against me. Imams in the mosque. They've been talking against me and my colleagues. They've been mentioning my names, my name everywhere. Right. So when I start having problems with like. Uh, I'm going to mention you when I start talking about the Turkey, uh, the Turkish mm. dictator Erdogan, mm -hmm. the two of the Turkish ambassadors. So within one year and a half or two years, both of them, they were women. They wrote public statement against me. And one of them asked from the government to arrest me because I start writing about illegal mosques. The right. Turkey was... A building in Kosovo and what they've been doing with Islamic agenda. At that night on the TV, I was in Albania and I've been talking about with name, the president of Turkey is doing this and that and this and that and facts and documents and numbers and money and everything. Right. That night when I came back home, I was physically brutally attacked at the parking garage. And you get, so you get driven home by... Yeah, the, the drivers. So you have, you have drivers yes, there. Yes, I okay. had drivers. So and I went they home. they leave. They leave. 
and I am about to go at my car to take some things from my car because having kids, you have a lot of things. Yeah. So I opened the the car, but there was no light in the basement because there was a new building and still construction doing going right. on. So I had the light of my phone. I had my phone in my hand, right. opened the car and trying to pull out my stuff. When someone grabbed me on my here at that right moment i was scared that i'm going to be raped this man was holding me and i felt so small on his body and he was shouting my mouth like not to scream and the other one and i don't know it was yeah there was a one was punching me on so i've been trying to move so i remember some at one point uh being over the wall and at one point being attacked. But I didn't feel the pain on my body because I couldn't breathe. And I was, at one moment, you think you're you're going to die and think about your own kids. So it might last maybe 30 seconds, but it feels longer. I was uh, on the ground when I heard the steps of people uh, walking like escaping and I was tr- I was I couldn't walk and I've seen my f- the 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 light of my phone when I grabbed the phone and I was trying to open my phone my uh my hand was with uh, blood so right. my blood and at that moment I thought I might be shot or attacked with right, knife because right. you might not feel they were telling me that you cannot feel the yeah. pain and then they realized that the blood was coming from my mouth. I called the drivers and they came back and I said, I am attacked. Please come back because I right. didn't know if these people are still in the parking right. garage. And they're fully masked and you could I tell don't us- know if they were because it was dark. I right. haven't seen their faces. You, but you, could you feel You felt like it was definitely two men. I Yes, they might be more, but one of them was holding, holding me right. and the other one because they were trying to break my leg because right. this leg was in i i i'm gonna I, i'm gonna show you the photo because there is no way to do to describe my condition right. and then i was sent to the emergency room and right. police came and yeah but they didn't find out who did it so you when you have so many enemies yeah you don't know who to blame for was the police apologetic at all for like not ever no 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 in the beginning i've mentioned previously when we met that they didn't even took the photos of my body and when the u.s ambassador came in my house and i complained and i said this police is not willing to find out who attacked me because the bruises will vanish and they have to know what happened to Mm me and then the the ambassador spoke with the head of police and the team came in my house so no they didn't find out. And so didn't. it was after that that you decided, like, I can't stay here anymore? I came for a month in the United States with my older son. I, I didn't want to leave. As I mentioned you, everything. Right. Growing up there, building your whole career and trying to kind of, it was basically my life out there. And uh, I didn't want to leave. But even after the attack, I was receiving Again, threats. I remember, is it A47? 
the AK-47. AK-47. Yeah, yeah. They send me a picture of that saying that they are going to kill me with that. So I have wow. everything, all the facts. And even after the attack, of course, when they have realized that police didn't find yeah, out, this gave them commodity right, to continue right, right, and right. threaten me. So I didn't allow my kids to go to the soccer and they've been completely isolated and I couldn't just live in that fear because I didn't want to stop and speak up against this. And I knew that United States is the right place and to speak up, to continue do what I've been doing. And even though I am four years now in New York, I still write, I still attempt conferences, TV debates on, on this issue. So you haven't been back at all no. in four years. Wow. And so like in terms of your career, do you feel like it um it didn't give you as much of the upwards trajectory of like when you're here, do you feel like you can still operate somewhat similarly? You can operate it's different when you yeah, go in hard. the field it's much harder but still you can use your voice right. out there so i know that i meet with state department people i know that when i meet with people that can make change on the policy makers then i'm going to use my knowledge my network mm-hmm. and my sources to change not just kosovo but this phenomenon it's increasing all over the ideology is pretty much alive so I know, I know how they recruit people, not now necessarily in Kosovo, but even in the United States. So I'm trying to use my knowledge and my background and to contribute here. So from, does most of your work still have to do with regards to what's going on in Kosovo with regards to radicals or is it also, it's it's here as well? It's here as well. It's the Turkish impact also in other countries. So I'm in contact with different groups. I'm in contact with Yazidi, Yazidi community, uh, Kurdish community, Turkish community who are persecuted uh, from. So it now my networks expanded in with other with other nations. So not just Albanians. So so how present is ISIS, for example, in the United States? In your so opinion? it's not just ISIS. For example, radicals that support. Turkish precedent. Right. They kind of belong in the same line so? of ideology. Yes. Like how so? Like what is if their... If they are... So you have... if the, I follow a lot of the online uh, source. Mm-hmm. So you kind of combine people when they are trying to support... They support, for example, Erdogan. Mm-hmm. They support what this ruthless guy is doing in Syria, attacking Kurds. In meantime, Kurds are the only one who are fighting ISIS. Mm. So you see, you see, can uh, you make the connection? I so see. these guys that are supporting Erdogan are right. against Kurds who are fighting right. ISIS. Right. So they kind of are together in the ideology. So they are all connected. The ideology they belong, not necessarily needs to have an ISIS name. But how so how but how dangerous are these people? Like it's one thing to believe in something, it's another thing to act on it. It's kind of a sleepy beer. The beer mm. is outside sleeping right now. Right. But you don't know when it's going to be awake right, right, and right. what to expect from them. But 
they are out there, they are everywhere and they are using different ways. And these days is much easier than 15 years ago. If there was only a mosque or only an NGO office, right, right. now you have social media that right. is much, much easier to recruit. They are within the schools, they are within the colleges, you have... They are very smart, basically. They speak dozens of languages, so you never know. You have to keep an eye on your kids. Not need, not necessarily your kids should be a Muslim. To be into this network, mm -hmm. they can be Catholics, they can be Christians. And we have, I, I remember I've seen this story from this mom from Canada. Her son was a Catholic and he joined Islamic State because they are exposed to their narratives, video, messages. It's kind of the lecture they follow right. until they become a trustful soldier to their ideology. And then that can either mean like going to fight for them or committing like an act. Not necessarily commit immediately an act. But you... Not all of them are brave enough to commit right, an act. Right. So thing. not all of them will commit a terrorist attack. But when they expand the willingness right. to belong to this thing, then you never know. You might have to date a 17 years old who doesn't have a courage. But who knows what we what will go through in five years. Right. And who will use him for a special mission. The thing is that it's not just chasing or going after the terrorist guys. You have to keep an eye on the spread of the ideology. Right. And so in your eyes, do you feel like ISIS is stronger or weaker than they were in 2000? They are reorganizing because they're some of their leaders got killed. Right. But now in March, they have the new leader. So they are doing, they are committing the terrorist attack, which the media is not covering. Yeah. You have terrorist attacks in, in Africa, in different third world countries that media are not really paying mm -hmm. attention until something happens right. in the Western right. countries. Right. But uh, especially now with the high flaw of the immigrants coming from this part, they can use the um, immigration flow to be undercovered as an immigrant and get easily into the Western countries, mm. but also not necessarily coming from there. So they could be recruited for many years here. They can be an American citizen. They can be a Swedish. Like I mentioned, this, there is this show on Netflix and explains you how they recruited Swedish two brothers yeah. to trying to do the terrorist attack. Right. Do you, so for you personally, like, why, what motivate, like, what, what keeps your motivation high? Uh, you know, I kind of grew up, I didn't become a journalist when I was on enough mature. I was very young and I kind of grew up building my, myself. And I know that the democracy, the value of democracy, because I I was living under the regime. Right. When you do not have freedom, and I know not necessarily we cannot compare the freedom of me living under the Milosevic regime, but also freedom 
of the women see what is happening in Afghanistan, Taliban's, you know who they are attacking the most? Women. Yeah. They are not allowed to go to school. They are not allowed to go out the, their own house without being accompanied by the men. Right. So this is the freedom right. the, they are trying to destroy. So it's not just being scared from terrorist attack. It's beyond that. It's the freedom. It's the Western values they want to change. Right. So this is about this is what I'm trying to write and raise awareness. Have you ever spoken to one of those Taliban women uh, directly and like kind of been able to interview or no? No, it's very difficult. No, I imagine it's very right? difficult. But with those that, as I said, they regret that right. they joined that they went to Syria and their parents. Are there any that you've spoken to that? Don't have regrets that are very happy no. that of what they did? No, because they don't want to speak. Yeah, with they me. don't want to speak. But what would you estimate? Like, do you think that there are any that are content? It would have to be like the. I think that women, especially, because being a mother and yeah. raising your own kids. Yeah. As I said, there are women terrorists and they are fighting, but also women that they joined, they were following their husbands, and it's hard for them. Now, there are terrible conditions that they are living and no one wants them back because right. they are scared right. and they don't belong to nowhere. Like even in Syria, living in those camps and they cannot come back and it's just hard. But in the meantime, as I said, still uh, many of them, I'm not saying most of them, many of them are victims. Right. And in that young age, even I mean, you cannot make responsible even parents. It's kind of the whole network, teachers, everyone should kind of keep an eye open when it comes to this because you lose a child. You so, but also you kind of contribute on increasing their network mm -hmm. all over the world. Do you like? Is do you ever tell yourself? I'll, once I do this or once, like, say there are lesser rates of radicals, I'll, like, stop my – like, for like how do you gauge where you're at with your career and is there ever, like, a, a point that you'll say, okay, I'm done with this subject or I'm done? I had moments, especially when I was attacked, kind of feel powerless. Like, you, as I said, you kind of – you see only your kids and yourself and what if something happens to them you're right. going to blame your yourself right. because of i didn't write to become famous and i was telling my colleagues uh i was receiving a lot of awards never thinking about that i just i loved my job i love what i've been doing kind of it became a part of me, not just a job. It was me. It was Arbana that mm -hmm. even here I'm doing a lot of things. I'm not getting paid as a journalist when I speak up on the conferences. So this is my mission. So what I'm planning is just to leave some of my knowledge writing books. I have a lot of unpublished interviews, facts, documents, I just want to leave there for students and how to investigate for journalists because you have, it's my experience, many journalists can benefit from my experience because I grew in the society when there was not safe to write about this. So there is many things that I'm still having 
planning to do. What do you do? You think you'll ever go back and live and be able to? I live? don't think so. Like, well, I don't know. I right. cannot because <laughs> for now, I still on a daily basis. If you Google my name on social media. There are tens of fake news against me. This way they are trying to increase the hate against me right. with the fake news things that I've never said with my photo. And you never know. There was this guy uh, recently, like a few week, months ago maybe, he said that we are going to throw acid on your face. Three days ago, there is the other guy. If I see you on the streets of Pristina, I'm going to kill you. And they don't even hide their identity. So you never know. Right. So I cannot risk my kids. And like, what are the conversations that you have with your kids when it comes to these things? Like, what does a mom say to her? They ra they raised a lot of questions, especially lately, about Islam. And my youngest son has a very good friend who is Muslim, I think, from India, and he'd been telling me that. Uh, and I said, not all the Muslims are bad. Uh, yeah. They are suffering from these radicals. They oh, are right. good people. Yeah. So the religion is not to be blamed. And we cannot see them, all of them, as extremists. So they are asking questions because they don't know. They right. think that all the Muslims hate me because right. of what I've been writing. So they just want to hear from me. Well, that's that's always for me like what I I think what was... I guess most painful because I have a lot of Muslim friends as well and I think was most painful for them and even I guess in turn for me to see how they were treated it's like Islam in its at its core is an in just like most basically every other major religion is a very peaceful religion you know what I mean it's it's the and I and I would even argue that extremists are not Muslim you know what I mean and like that's not to be a true Muslim. This is what I told you the thing is that even Christians were right yeah, recruited. The thing is that, do you know how many Muslims are fighting Islamic State or yeah. against them? Right. Activists. You have women. Exactly. You have women in Iran. They come up. They have courage. It's right. it's hard for them to come yeah. up in Iran against the Iran regime. You have Afghan. I have Afghan friends that I escaped. They were raising their voice. This Afghan movie director that she's doing remarkable job. So the thing is that we have to applaud right. this women and men that they are raising voice because it's set in meantime because of these attacks, because of the extremists, people that do not have knowledge, they hate Muslims. Right. So this is not right. Even if you are covered, even if you see a covered woman, she is not bad. She's not extremist. I have a friend back home in Kosovo. I have to mention this. When I received an award from Obama administration as a woman of courage, the first couple that brought me flowers is this covered woman and her husband. Both of them wow. are Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, they are devoted to the religion, but they know what is going on. Right. So they were the first to... to to acknowledge my work. So I guess to wrap things up, what do you kind of hope life looks like for you and family over the next 10, 15 years? Like, I don't know if you ever think about it like that, but what do you hope, you know, obviously there's been a lot of the past five years for you have been very turbulent and ways traumatic. Like, how do you uh, kind of hope that the next 
decade looks like for yourself? Like if I go back and how many things happen, I, I cannot it's predict great. anything. Like if I so. told you 10 years ago, you'd be here today. You'd be like, you're no. crazy. You know? In 2015, so. when I received an award, I was in the White House. I so I would think that like five years, six years later, I, I will be here as an immigrant basically right. twice during the war once and now crazy. for the second time. And it's different when you come as a visitor. It's different when you are a single mom. And it's a completely different story, my life with my kids here. So So what do you, if you, I, had, to, if you had to manifest some kind of... I don't know. As I said, my plans are, even though I don't know what might happen, is first of all, I feel good that my kids are safe. Mm -hmm. And I am planning to write. So I am planning to share my story not Arbana's personal life, mm -hmm. but what happened in the recent years, right. in, like in the last 10, 15 years with the society and how things might change and how our courage changed the society for better. Mm -hmm. We need courage. We don't know what might happen. You never know. As in my case, I didn't know that I might be brutally attacked. But even that, you don't know, it might happen here as well. Right. I am not planning to stop. Do you ever feel like, so you, would you say you don't live in fear here? I had some of my friends uh, who I used to met them back home, FBI representatives. They told me, we would suggest you not to share the location where you live. Mm -hmm. Usually on social media, we share location, right, right. but... This is that thing that I'm not doing. They suggested me not to share the location. Well, we have to wrap things up, but I just want to thank you so much for, for coming on. And uh, I mean, I think your story is fascinating. And I know that, you know, for a lot of young men and women um, that want to get into journalism, I guess in ways it could be scary. But in other ways, it could show that um, I think your your courage shines through and uh you know, you're doing a lot of the work that nobody wants to do. So um, I think that's amazing. But uh, thank you. Thank you so much for taking thank the time. Thank you. My pleasure being here. Thanks a lot.